Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In 1903, an immigrant came to America with $2.51. Almost no one knew who he was, but they would. He was going to get very, very rich, but his money and his fame came in kind of unusual ways. He didn't become a movie star or an athlete or a captain of industry. He became a con man, maybe the most famous one who had ever lived. He ran an investment business, sort of. You'd invest, and then very quickly you'd get high returns. It was a great con, and people practically threw their money at this guy, Charles Ponzi. Ponzi, not surprisingly, spent money like it was going out of style. He bought a mansion. He bought part of a pasta company. He brought his mother over from Italy on a fancy cruise ship. But it was only a matter of time before everything came crashing down. And Ponzi's scheme, which is so famous, it's now part of our vernacular, collapsed. Maria Konnikova has written about con artists and their amazing power to suck us in. She's the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer to The New Yorker. Maria, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So how would you define a con? Sort of in the most simple way, what are the elements of a con as it gets put together? Well, the definition actually comes from the word confidence, as in to give someone your confidence. Mm. It comes from a phrase that not the first known con artist, but the first time that we used the word con artist happened, which was this guy um, in the 1800s in New York, William Thompson, who would approach people on the street and say, have you the confidence in me to lend me your watch until tomorrow? And he ended up with a whole lot of watches before he was caught because it was actually quite an ingenious way to get people to put their trust in him because it really, um, you know, it says so much about the kind of person you are. Um, Do you trust this person? Do you think they'll give the watch back? And so that's where the root of con or confidence man um, or confidence game comes from. Have you the confidence in me? So Mm. it's all about giving someone your confidence. And that is the crucial element. So con artists don't actually take anything from you. You give it to them. So you were talking about Charles Ponzi. The brilliance of his scheme is that he didn't take money from anyone. He didn't steal any money. Mm -hmm. People wanted to give it to him. The same thing, you know, when we have our modern day Charles Ponzi, Bernie Madoff. I mean, people just couldn't wait to give him their money. There were wait lists. They tried for years to get into the Madoff Fund. And that's why I think that defines all cons, not just Ponzi schemes, that you really, you give them your confidence fully. Um, And it makes con artists really tough to catch and really tough to prosecute because oftentimes they didn't break the law. Um, So what makes us as humans, I guess, so vulnerable to these con people, to these confidence people, um, since, you know, if we don't change over the course of 100 years, there must be something kind of hardwired, sort of part of our psychology that we're just, we're just vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's actually a three-part answer. 
Part one is that we're really, really bad at spotting lies. So we actually haven't evolved to spot deception, and instead we've evolved to trust. And it's more advantageous from an evolutionary standpoint to trust other people. So there's a, a lot of data that shows us societies with higher levels of trust do better socially, economically. Um, and if you think about it, it kind of makes sense, right? Who's who's the person who's actually going to survive in the wilderness? Not the lone wolf, but the person who has others supporting him. Right, right. And so you need to build those human connections. You need to learn to trust other people. So that part makes sense. And it also makes sense that we don't spot deception well because most deceptions are really kind of social lubricants. So you don't want to know that someone doesn't really like you. You don't want to know (laughs) that they're not happy to see you. You know, when someone says, oh, you know, I love your haircut, you don't want to know that they actually think that your haircut looks ludicrous. (laughs) You know, (laughs) so so really those kinds of white lies make society function. And so we we don't have that radar. So I think that's the first part of it, that we can't really tell when people are lying to us, even though we think we're really, really good at it. I think the second part of it is that we are very optimistic as a species. We're hopeful. You know, that gets us going in the morning, that we think that no matter what, tomorrow is going to be better than yesterday was. Otherwise, what's the point? And you see on scale after scale that people actually have this kind of optimism bias about themselves and about the world. They don't see reality as reality. They see it with kind of this rose-colored glow. There's mm-hmm. there's really a truth to that cliche that we see the world through rose-colored glasses. And the only exception to that is people who are clinically depressed. They actually respond accurately on all self-assessments and assessments of the world, and they're clinically depressed. So once again, it shows that having that optimism bias is normally right. very advantageous. Right. It helps protect our psychology. We don't want to know the truth about ourselves, which I think leads us nicely to the final point, which is that if I tell you, you know, listen, if it seems too good to be true, it is. You'll say, yes, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. However, when it comes to yourself, you never really think good things are too good. You think, oh, I deserve this. Right. I Don't I know how to pick the best investment funds? Look at these returns. You don't say, hmm, these returns are too good to be true. You're saying, look at how much money I made last year. Right. And look how smart. It's a measure, instead of a measure of the con person's intelligence, it's a measure of your intelligence that... Exactly. And con artists know that. They, you know, flattery gets you everywhere. And (laughs) con con artists know this. I mean, they will flatter the ear off of anyone. You will feel so smart, so refined, so sophisticated. You'll feel like the best version of of yourself. That's the version they're selling you. Mm. Um, And you'll feel like a truly wonderful human being. And I think that's part of the success. They make you feel good. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Maria Konnikova, author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Do you think that con artists are a special group of people, or they're just kind of regular people who somewhere along the line like made a bad choice or kind of started to follow a, a slightly nefarious path and started down this you know what I mean? Or are they like mm-hmm. very particularly suited to to do this thing? So I think the answer is both. So I think that 
A con artist is both born and made. It's a combination, as with so many things, of predisposition and opportunity. So would any person become a con artist um, if given the chance? Probably not. But if you have certain predisposing qualities and you're put in that environment, then a person who would have you know, been a perfectly you know, decent contributing member of society in an honest way um, in another set of circumstances could become a con artist. Mm. So I write about something called the dark triad of traits, um, which is psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. And psychopathy is actually incredibly rare. So it's absolutely not true that all con artists are psychopaths. There's a very small overlap there. Mm. But narcissism and Machiavellianism are actually much more common. So the narcissism is not just a kind of grandiose sense of self, but a sense of entitlement. So um, since we've spoken about them in the past, let me just refer back to someone like Ponzi or Madoff. You don't think that you're doing anything bad because you think that you are more entitled to that money. You know, you're smarter, you're somehow better, and so you're just taking what's rightfully yours, and who are you really hurting? You, you know, don't even people? think of it as criminal behavior. Exactly, okay. exactly. So it's this very self-justifying way of looking at the world. And Machiavellianism, from Machiavelli's Prince, is the ability to persuade people to do what you want them to do without their realizing it. So someone like Madoff wanted you to give them your money, but instead of asking for it, what does he do? He says, no, I'm sorry, I'm not taking any new investments. He makes you beg. So right, he, right. he actually kind of uses this very sly psychological approach to get people to do exactly what he wants, but they think it's their idea. Right. They're like, oh, he, you know, he, he didn't ask me. I wanted to give it to him. And people do this over and over. Hmm. So I wonder, you know, since we're really not that good sort of psychologically at, um, at distrust, we're very good at trust. I wonder when it comes to these kind of newish platforms like Twitter and Facebook, where lots and lots of people who are quote unquote our friends now have real sort of proximity to us or feel like they have proximity to us. Um, do you think things have gotten a lot worse because in some ways people can bridge vast distances to con you? Absolutely. Um, I think that social media is a con artist's best friend. Um, and they are able to take advantage of it so much better than we are able to protect ourselves. We are just putting so much information about ourselves online that it's now a cakewalk. So things that the first step of any con is called the put up and it's profiling the victim, figuring out, you know, what are the victim's likes and dislikes? What makes her tick? What motivates her? What is she afraid of? All of these things that just create a psychological profile that you can then work with. This used to take so long. Now all you have to do is be friends with them on Facebook, follow them on Twitter, follow them on Instagram, look at their registries, and you have this big picture. You don't even have to be technologically savvy, but you know so much about their life. Um, it's actually quite scary. And then you can use all of this information against them. And I don't mean use it against them in the sense of blackmail. I mean, use it against them like, oh, you know, how about them Red Sox? Oh, you're also a fan. Who knew we have so much in common? Right. And of course, they had done 
all of this research right. and they know exactly what bar to look for you. Right. They know that you love the Red Sox. They know they even probably know your favorite brand of shoes and they've worn the same shoes because we like people who are similar to us. <laughs> all of these sorts of things um, that will make trust so much more easy to accomplish and so much quicker to accomplish. Is there any evidence that there has been in the last few years a big tick up in these kinds of scams and and cons? You know, there's been evidence in an uptick in catfishing, which is false identity, um, and that has definitely become easier. There are a lot of sweetheart scams up there, and a sweetheart scam is when you think you're in a romantic relationship with someone, um, but it's really a con. So things like that have definitely been on the upswing. It's really a con, like, do you know the person, or are you just kind of like pen pals with the person? Either way. So one of the people I wrote about um, met someone on OkCupid and ended up living with him, and he was an imposter. He was not who he said he was. This was a really... Ter- you know, it's a terrible situation, but unfortunately, a common one. So and then they just steal. Ways. They like this. Yeah, they they're, steal they're from in the it for something else. Okay. Yeah, they're they're in there for something else. Um, money, quite often, or um, you know, power. There are lots of different motivations. Mm. But um, but yes, they. It's not about love at all. Mm. It's only about love for one of the two mm. people. And it's a that's a it's a really devastating one, but it's become much easier with with social media and with online dating. But let me caveat all of this by saying that there are no good numbers on the number of cons that are perpetrated every year because most of them are not reported, either because people don't realize they've been conned. So a lot of people still to the end say, no, no, it wasn't a con. You know, this was legitimate. I just got unlucky or. Um, they're too embarrassed, and so they don't report it. So we don't have the real numbers. We just have an approximation. But yes, it does seem like social media has opened up the world to a lot of different cons, and the internet in general. I mean, if you think about the Russian hacking, that started off with um, a very elementary technique of con artists, the fake email, please reset your password. And this worked at the highest levels of government. And that's how they were able to gain access to um, the emails of so many people in the Democratic Party. So uh, now that you know everything that you know, are um, are there pieces of advice that you give to people about like how to protect yourself, especially if this is a world in which Cons that always existed are there, but maybe they've multiplied. Maybe they're facilitated by all these kind of new ways we have of reaching out to people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the most practical piece of advice is don't accept friend requests from anyone you don't actually know, no matter how many friends in common you have, and be really protective of your personal information. And people, you know, people say, oh, you're old, you know, that that's why you're giving this advice. I want all of my friends to know all this personal stuff about me. I'm saying, yeah, well, you know, <laughs> this is, it, it actually, sure, your friends know it, but then a lot of other people do too. Right. Um, you know, really be careful with your privacy settings hmm. and with who you accept into your friend groups. And um, that is the single most practical piece of information I can offer. Um, One that's a little bit more difficult to implement, but I think is very helpful, is to try to look at yourself in the third person. So how would you react to this situation if it weren't happening to you, if it were happening to, say, 
the guy who sits over in the next cubicle from you. What advice would you give him? So, for instance, you know, he has this great new investment opportunity in land in Florida um, that's been underdeveloped, and he's really excited about this because he's going to have great returns, and he shares this over lunch. Do you say, oh, that sounds really great, I'm really excited for you, or do you say, wait a minute, um, I think you need to do more hmm. recon on this person, this aspect, this, have you asked this, have you seen that? And if it's the latter and it's happening to you, then you should be careful as well. Because it's much easier to be objective about someone else, especially someone who's not very close to you, than it is to be objective about yourself. Hmm. That said, this advice is much easier to give than to actually take, because when it starts happening to you, you don't want to be objective. When good things happen, we don't ask questions. We only ask questions when bad things are happening. Have you changed your behavior at all? Or do you feel like you're less trusting of people? I was for sure at the um, right after I kind of emerged from writing the book because I had spent over three years with just these really terrible individuals. <laughs> and so I was really dispirited. I said, you know, people suck. Humanity sucks. <laughs> um, you know, Hobbes was right. Life is nasty, brutish, and short. And so, yeah, for a while there, I just didn't want to meet anyone new. And then I realized that that's a very impoverished existence. I mean, you really close yourself off emotionally to new experiences, to new relationships, and it's not worth it because most people are not con artists. What I realized was that the same thing that makes us so vulnerable to con artists is also what makes us human. It's the essence of our humanity, and I wouldn't give that up. And so, sure, maybe being trusting and open will make me a potential mark, but it's also going to have me leading a much richer life for most of my life. And so I would rather take that trade off. And that's where I've ended up. Maria Konnikova is the author of The Confidence Game, Why We Fall For It Every Time. She's also a contributing writer for The New Yorker. Maria, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And on our website, we've got Konnikova's personal favorite when it comes to cons, a man who impersonated people in almost every profession you can imagine, including some that are going to horrify you. So he decided that he wanted to be a surgeon because it was the most kind of prestigious thing he could think of. And so he stole the credentials of an actual surgeon. This was during the Korean War, and there was a shortage of surgeons. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.